you please join me as I pray? So our Father, we pause as a community. We, we come every week, the first day of the week, remembering that Jesus, you conquered the grave. We have hope and life and joy bound up in you, our resurrected King. And so we come and we confess sin and receive pardon. And now we come to this moment of opening your word and saying, God, speak to your children. We're listening. I pray that we would be attentive, responsive, honest. That we would be honest with this text that is so honest with us. We thank you that you speak so directly to us. I pray that we would receive it. And that you would leave us as a transformed people willing to, to wait on you. So you are welcomed by your spirit to come and to deal with us even now, God. We look forward to what you have for us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This is our final installment in a series that we have called Hold That Pose. A study of waiting through the book of the Psalms. And... One of the things that we've recognized together in this series, I think, is that waiting is kind of slippery. We've been talking about this thing that is present throughout the Psalms and the way that we're supposed to be learning how to pray, how we're supposed to be growing as people, that we're intended to wait, but in some ways it, it often feels like the, the application, the immediate direction, the ability to hold on to it is a little bit slippery. It's, it's not like a it's not like a sermon series on managing your money or your relationships. It's, it's a bit more unruly than that. Trying to get your arms around what does it mean that God's inviting me in my particular story to understand what it means to wait on him. It's slippery. But what, one thing that I think we need to recognize is, is it is central. Though slippery, it is central. It is the context for God's people and what he's calling them to and the ways that he's working them throughout the whole of the scriptures. It is the air that they are breathing, waiting on God, understanding that. We know that this was Abraham and Sarah, the, the father and mother of faith in the Old Testament, that they knew what it was to wait on God. We know that Moses waited 40 years on God before the activity being marked out by God to help lead pe God's people to freedom. Joseph, God's kind of marked out in the 12 and the family that he was, he knew that God had something special in store for him, but spent 13 years in a pit waiting for those things to come to fruition. David, likewise, was anointed by God, but then waited until taking the throne. Jesus existed with 30 years of anonymity before being unleashed on the world in his ministry. The apostle Paul was knocked off his horse by a bright shining light, but then he was unheard of for 14 years. What we see is that we are tempted in reading the scriptures to zoom in on these moments where God's people are being used or where something is happening and, and think that activity is the consistent baseline of God's people. But really, the context, the air that they breathe, is waiting. Waiting is where people are prepared and released. <laughs> See, okay, we tried. We tried. This is my youngest. We're a week out of the hospital. We really were hoping he was going to make it through, but you're doing great, Ash. Thank you. <laughs> he likes my preaching about as much as the rest of my kids. <laughs> Doesn't he? Yeah, he, he made it through like 40 seconds. <laughs> out. 
Waiting is key. It is the air that the saints of God are breathing in their preparation. And what we're realizing is that we often think that it's our frantic activity that is going to move the needle, that's going to equip or, or kind of going to unlock God's work in the world. It's our frantic activity that's going to do that. We also incidentally believe it's our frantic activity that makes us valuable. It's our badge of honor. We think others are going to be impressed by it. And, and God is operating in a different way, saying, no, actually your preparation, your being ready to be used by me, you moving kingdom needles in your life, it's actually unlocked an anticipatory waiting, not frantic activity. This is what we've been wrestling with as a community working through the Psalms. And this morning, the final installment, I'm thankful that we're finishing with Psalm 69 because we finish with what is a very honest word to us as a people being invited to wait. The temptation is to say, well, if you just wait, everything's going to go smoothly and better and beautifully, that the clouds are going to part and the birds are going to sing, to which the scriptures say that's not quite the case. You are, in fact, called to wait upon God. It's central for your preparation and your fruitfulness, your joy in the world. And, by the way, what this text is going to say is that waiting is wearisome, hard, painful work. The honest word from this psalm is that you are called to wait. It is central to the faithful man or woman's journey. And by the way, it is a very difficult road. But we will hear by the end that though waiting is wearisome work, it's worth it. It's worth it. And so we're going to explore what that looks like together first. Why is it that waiting is so wearisome? And then why is it worth it? Why is waiting God so wearisome? The first reason that it's so wearisome is that it's exhausting work. Did you hear it in the text? David has been waiting on God and he's he's trying to articulate what it looks like and feels like. It is exhausting in nature. Look back with me at verse 3 where he talks most pointedly about it. He says, I am weary with my crying out. The Hebrew for that phrase weary literally means I'm gasping for breath. I'm exhausted. I'm winded by this activity. He says, I'm weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. What he is saying is this, that waiting is throat parching, eye dimming work. The word for throat parching is this kind of illustrative word. It literally means to burn, to scorch. The idea is you've been calling out, ah, to the point where it hurts to swallow. You know when your throat hurts like that? Has it ever hurt like that because you've been crying through the night so you don't have any more tears? He says, my eyes have grown dim. We don't know if they're dim because the tears are welling up or because sleep has been scattering or both. But what he's saying is this waiting thing takes you to the end of yourself. It's throat parching. It's eye dimming. We're all waiting in different ways, aren't we? I I had one of these eye-dimming moments this last week. I was driving around with these boys, and and, uh, Judah asked a question, just like the sweetest, most innocent five-year-old sort of way, but in so doing, he penetrated all of my armor and helped me see that I'm still waiting in some areas that I thought I was over. Just very sweetly, seemingly from nowhere, the back seat. Hey, Dad, uh, how old would our sisters be if they had been born? Many of you know that we've, we've had three miscarriages over the years, three little girls that we would have loved to be parents to. And there's something about a five-year-old saying it 
just with innocence and sweetness, where all of a sudden dad's driving the car and it's like one of those eye-dimming moments because all of a sudden I'm driving but there's lots of tears and I was like, oh, I thought it was okay and I'm not okay. <laughs> and I could almost feel the, the tension from my five-year-old trying to figure out like how to change the subject because <laughs> he just broke dad, you know? He's like, uh, it's okay, let's talk about something else. <laughs> like, you know, I, waiting's kind of like that. Like it's things that maybe you think you're past, but you're not. Things that you've processed a little bit, but you haven't fully. Living in a broken world, we're always in this in-between of, it turns out I'm still waiting for some clarity from God. I don't know when I'll get it. Maybe in glory. But there's still like a well of, of the eye-dimming sort of waiting that happens in the world where we go, things are not the way I thought they were going to be. I have a friend that has struggled with several rounds of real intense depression, and when the clouds gather, what he has said is this, I used to try to kick against it because I thought I could thrash my way through, but I can't. That when the clouds gather, I, I've actually had to learn that I just have to walk this valley with God. I don't get to fight through it and, and make the clouds part. And he's like, and that is scary. See, waiting, I, I'm just so thankful that the Psalms and the scriptures in general are so honest they're going, listen, waiting is going to be required of you if you're God's own, and listen, it's not easy. The first reason that it's so wearisome is that it's exhausting. At times you will be gasping, wondering, when am I going to make it through to the other side? Do you feel that? Are you waiting now in some way? Maybe it's the consequences of your sin are showing up, and you're wondering, how long am I going to have to wait here? When do I get to, when do I get to be done with that? Or you're waiting in singleness, going, I really didn't think I would be fill in the age. I thought it wasn't going to look like this. I didn't think it was going to feel like this. Or waiting in infertility. Or just that general, feels like my life is circling one more time. You ever been on that flight where when you arrive, they tell you the flight pattern is full and you just start circling the city's airport and you're like, at some point, I know I'm going to land. I just don't, it's just like one more time around. Life sometimes feels like it's in one of those patterns. Like, when, do, when does this get to land? Waiting is wearisome work, and the first reason is because it's exhausting. It's exhausting in those ways. Sometimes we're gasping for breath, wondering when is this going to be done. The, the second reason is that as it exhausts us, listen, the text is going to be honest, and we have, to, we have to feel the weight of it. It exposes us. Waiting is wearisome because it's an exposing work. We realize that we are mixed offerings at best. Our frantic activity, I, I think this is one of the reasons why we just stay so busy, is because when I'm running and I'm achieving and I'm producing, I'm insulated from the reality that's nipping at my heels. But when all of a sudden I'm slowed and stopped and have to wait, all of a sudden like, reality kind of starts come crashing in. I feel like all of a sudden the stuff that's been nipping at my heels catches up, and I have to deal with it. The way that he says it in verses four through six is this. He says, more in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal must I now restore. That in this moment of waiting, he's starting to realize there's, there's enemies thronging about him. But more than just focusing at the enemies, he gets even more honest in verse 5. And what he says is this, Oh God, you know my folly. 
The wrongs that I have done are not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. You see, David, in this moment of stillness and silence, all of a sudden comes present to the fact that it's not just all these other people's fault that it feels this way. And the stillness and the quiet and the waiting, what he comes to is, I've got folly and I've got wrongs. Two words that happen on different scales. Uh, folly is, is on the scale of wisdom. This is the word that gets repeated in the Proverbs. You can be foolish without being sinful. You might have been ignorant or not aware of what was going on. You weren't paying attention to the things around you and you've just really stepped in it. That was folly. But David says, yeah, that and wrong, which is not on the scale of wisdom and folly, but it's on the scale of righteousness and sinfulness. And he's going, I'm foolish and a sinner, and it's in the stillness that I'm very aware of it. In all of my frantic activity, I can convince others and myself that everything's grand. Look, look at all that's happening. But in my waiting, it is wearisome work because I'm exposed. I tasted this in a very pointed way in 2008. My, my wife and I moved to Boston. I was getting seminary trained. I was becoming professionally religious. You know? I arrived in 2008. We moved from Houston to Boston. And uh, I tore my ACL playing basketball right after we moved up there. So I was in this leg immobilizer. Some crutches, which is great for the snow and ice in Boston. So I'm doing this number. And then the sun starts going down at 3.30 p.m. Nobody told me that before I moved there. That's what happens in the winter in Boston. Wind chill, negative seven degrees, night after night. <laughs> it was like we went from just running about 100 miles an hour till we landed there, and it was like, stop right there. And the scary thing was this. I had been full of all of this ministry activity, speaking at youth events and doing these things, and had convinced myself that I was pretty important and good, and that I had gone to seminary to get some doctrinal excellence, because that's what I needed for ministry. And what I found out was that when I was stopped in my tracks and forced to wait in the freezing cold was one that I was really foolish. I was a workaholic that was not attending to a wife that was walking through all sorts of things. And two, I had secret hidden sexual sin that was rotting my bones. And I've been running so fast that I was able to convince everybody everything was okay. But I'll tell you, when the wind is whirling and it's negative seven degrees and you can't move, all of a sudden you're like, oh no. <laughs> the preparation that I needed was to be stopped in my tracks and go, until you deal with this, like you need to wait here. I was exposed in the waiting. Very uncomfortably. This is what happens. This is... This is God's classroom. What he says is, you have to wait on me and it will be exhausting. And in part, it will be exhausting because it's exposing. And not only that, because you're exhausted and because you're exposed, the last reality is this, it's excruciating. It hurts. It's like really painful. David says it in a whole host of different ways, but what he's saying is it, it feels like drowning. It's like a nightmare. Did you hear it in verse 1 and 2? 
The way that he starts is he says, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire. There is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. He comes back to the theme in verse 15, saying, Let not the flood sweep over me, or the deep swallow me up, or the pit close its mouth over me. Is, is there like a greater nightmare than drowning? Can you think about like what he's saying is that's what it feels like. My feet are slipping in the mud and the water is creeping up and this is the end of me. That's what this feels like. This waiting on God while no answers are coming. <laughs> he's saying it's painful. He says the reason it feels like drowning, he goes on to say in verse 19 through 21, he says it's because of this. You know my reproach, shame, my dishonor, my foes are known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart. It literally means to rupture or to tear, to rend. He's going, I am tattered internally. I am in despair. I looked for pity and there was none. For comfort, comforters and I found none. They gave me poison for food and for my thirst. They gave me sour wine to drink. In verse 29, he just simply says, I am afflicted and I am in pain. Do you hear it? David is being uncomfortably clear that the waiting is excruciating. It's like this moment of being exhausted and exposed, and you go, man, this, this hurts. You have any of those memories from being a kid that you have no reason to have remembered all your life, but they've just stuck with you, like a fairly innocuous memory that just, you're like, I, I remember that very vividly. I remember when I was like maybe eight or ten years old, the first time I woke in the night and I had slept on my arm wrong and it was asleep. <laughs> Just very vivid memory. I was maybe, maybe eight years old and I woke up and I, I went. <laughs> and I remember being like really undone by this experience. I was like, what have I done? Something is terribly wrong. And so what I did is I actually, I don't know why I thought this was like the medical cure for whatever this was. But I went to the bathroom and I soaked a hand towel and I wrapped it around my arm and I just kept doing this. I was like, what's wrong? And then the feeling started to come back and the pins and needles, and it was painful. I was like, oh no, this is permanent damage. This is, you know, and I remember the next morning at breakfast explaining to my parents why there were wet towels piled in the bathroom and I was like, yeah, I had this like really crazy, and they're like, yeah, we, we know what that is. Um, that moment where the feeling comes back and you're like, ooh, ah, ooh, that's this. The excruciating pain of waiting is like when you've been still long enough for the feeling finally to come back. Like you've been so frantic in all of your activity trying to drown out all of the discomfort of your sin patterns or the brokenness or the weakness or the, the missed hopes and expectations, but in the stillness, all of a sudden the feeling comes back, and that's the very moment where frantic activity is most enticing. You think, what I need right now is a phone. I need, I need a distraction. I need to answer some work emails. I need to prove myself again. I need to move, because this thing of being in the place of waiting, exhausted, and exposed is way too painful. Let's get back to some activity. And and the degree to which you are tempted to thrash through, to press through with frantic activity in the moments where God has put you in the uncomfortable place of waiting, let me say this, don't do it. Just stop. Stop the activity because, listen, even though it's wearisome work, 
it's worth it. Even though the waiting is wearisome work that exhausts you and exposes you and is excruciating in its painful realities, listen, it's worth it. And let me see if I can prove it to you from this text. Three things that God is doing in the waiting. The first is this. In the waiting, he is actively answering you. He is answering the cries of your heart in the waiting. In verse 13, this is the way the psalmist says it. He says, but as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. He says, please, at the acceptable time will you answer me. What I've come to realize, I, I believe, as I'm meditating on this text, is that the timing is always acceptable to God and rarely to us. Like the, the timing of the answer is rarely acceptable to us, but he's coming before God and going, at an acceptable time to you, God, would you do this work? Would you show up according to your covenant faithfulness? Do what you've always promised you will do. God is active in the answering through our waiting. The way that he, he, he then goes on in verses 14 through 18 to ask God to do a certain, to, to do this certain work. He's saying, God, deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies, from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good according to your abundant mercy. Turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant for I am in distress. Make, make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul. Redeem me. Ransom me because of my enemies. You can feel that in this moment, the request is, God, at an acceptable, acceptable time, answer me in these ways. Draw near, deliver, rescue, save. And what I've come to, to realize and what, what I think other saints who've gone before us is that the acceptable time always includes the season of waiting because the season of waiting is part of the answer. Um, John Newton, the famed hymn writer, uh, wrote about it in a hymn called I Asked the Lord. I Asked the Lord. It has stood the test of time over uh, a couple of hundred years. I want to share it with you. Um, I think it gets at the beauty and the ways that God is working in the waiting. This is the way that Newton says it. I think we've got it on the screen for you. It says, I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. Have you, ever, have you ever prayed that way? That's one of those moments of clarity prayer where you're like, God, I want more of you, more grace, more faith. I want to see you clearly. What he says is this, it's, "'Twas he who taught me thus to pray." So God, you taught me to pray like this, and, and he, I trust, has answered prayer, but it has been in such a way that has almost drove me to despair. I hoped that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest. Do you hear it? What he's saying is I ask God, give me more grace, make me into a saint. God, fill me with love for you, a vision for your glory. And he's saying, and I just assumed that he would show up in some favored hour when the sun was shining and the birds were chirping and he was going to just gently give me all that my heart desired. And he goes, but that's not it. Instead, look at this. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart. 
He let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more with his own hand, he seemed to aggravate my woe. He crossed all the fair designs I schemed. He cast out my feelings. He laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Will thou pursue this worm to death? Now listen. Here is the glory and the power that Newton in walking with the Lord through good times and bad, he experienced the power and the beauty of waiting. And he says, this is how the Lord answered in those moments. He says, "'Tis in this way the Lord replied that I answer prayers for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free." And break thy schemes of earthly joy, that thou mayest seek thy all in me, that thou mayest seek thy all in me. Do you hear what he's doing there? I think it's similar to what David is experiencing. I think it's the reason that waiting is the air that the saints breathe in the scriptures, and it's this. What God is saying is this. Friend, you have built your life seeking joys and things of this world. And it's in the waiting and all of its excruciating and wearisome experience, that you begin to realize those things don't work. He's going, listen, I'm answering my prayer, your prayers, to experience more of me, which incidentally, the path to getting there is exposing you to the depths of your own darkness and the realities that these joys don't deliver, so that finally you will find your home and recognizing that you would find your all in me. David has been invited into the wilderness classroom of God, saying, this wearisome work is worth it because in that space, I'm going to answer you. I'm going to give you what your heart is longing for. And it was only going to be discovered there. The gentleness, the patience, the compassion, the joy, the authority, the power, the fruitfulness, all the things that you think, wouldn't life be amazing if I operated in those ways? He says they're all bound up in the painful waiting. (laughs) I will answer you at an acceptable time. Not only that, God works in the waiting to defend you, to defend you. There are real enemies to David in this moment. There may be real enemies in the midst of your waiting, people that wish you ill, people that have crossed your path that you would say, what do I do with this? David prays a prayer in verses 22 through 28 that's intense. He prays, in a sense, curses on these people. Let me just read you a few highlights. He says, let their own table before them become a snare. When they are at peace, let it become a trap. He says in verse 24, pour out your indignation upon them. Let your burning anger overtake them. In verse 28, he finishes by saying, let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. You see, David prayers a pretty intense prayer about these enemies to his soul, but what I, what I need us to recognize is this, it's a prayer. It's not his game plan. It's not his personal activity. It's his prayer before God. And I think there's this recognition. I, I have a friend that was deeply wounded and mistreated by someone in his life, like in a really profound way that touches every area of his life. And as we've been walking through that pain, one of the things that we've had to process is that he has the ongoing temptation, especially late at night, to start Googling about this person. 
reading about them, trying to understand what's going on with their life right now, trying to figure out how to undermine the good things that are still occurring even though they have all of this wickedness in their life. And what we've had to do is hit pause on that and recognize that is a fruitless activity that is poisoning your soul. We need to take this frantic activity of thinking and worrying and trying to figure out how do I fix this and translate it into prayer that is waiting on God, that I'm coming and I'm praying these enemies down to the bottom and I'm leaving them before you, O God. This is what David's doing. He's turning it into a prayer and he's leaving these people before God and saying, I need you to defend me. My reputation, the things that are said and done, I can't run around trying to control the narrative. I need you to defend me. You see, God works in the waiting to answer us, to defend us, and lastly, to transform us. The reason the waiting is worth it, because in the waiting, he's answering, in the waiting, he's defending, and in the waiting, he is transforming. I just want to zoom out, and before we're done, think about the journey of this psalm. Where did it start? This can be interactive. We already covered it. Where does it start? What's happening at the beginning? Hmm. Do we remember that part? (laughs) Yeah, there we go. Yeah, thanks. He's drowning. Right? We started right out of the gates. He goes, I'm drowning. That's my current scenario. In verse 30, after processing with God this journey of my enemies and my drowning and my despair, my pain and my affliction, he starts in verse 30, all of a sudden future tense verbs break in. For the first time, he starts talking in terms of wills and shalls. In the presence of God and the waiting on God, he starts to see something beyond just his current circumstances. He starts to see over the horizon line, and what started with drowning finishes with security and thanksgiving and praise. This is what's unlocked in the prayer before God. Look at verse 30 through 36 with me. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or bull with horns and hooves. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy, and he does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah. And people shall dwell there and possess it. And the offspring of his servants shall inherit it. And those who love his name shall dwell in it. He is speaking in future tense verbs saying, God, you've promised some things and in your presence and in the waiting, I'm being reminded of them. What you've said is this. I know how this story ends and it's a good story. It's a story of security. You're gonna restore Zion. You're gonna bless your people. It's who you are, God. So right now I feel like I'm drowning, but what I know to be true is that this hope and this healing is on the way. A secure future can produce a transformed vision in the present. What he's saying is we can actually draw from future grace in such a way that as we become a people that are processing our painful waiting before God, we actually start to draw from future grace in a way that transforms the way that we're responding in the moment. And there's this beautiful picture where in his wilderness moment, he begins to offer grateful worship. He's going, I'm going to sing these songs, and this is what's going to happen. It's going to delight you, God. 
God's saying in this text, he says it delights the heart of the Father. This is going to make you very pleased, God. Your wilderness songs please the heart of the Father. What you're proclaiming to him is there's nothing in my current circumstances. This excruciating waiting makes me think maybe you've forgotten me, but then I recall your promises, and what I know is that I can sing now from this point, and the Father goes, ah, that pleases me. And he says this, not only does it please the Father, it revives the humble, and it restores those that are seeking God. Now, let's see if we can make sense of this. Your very purpose for existing is to glorify God as you love and serve people around you. What this text says is that when in the wilderness, borrowing from future grace, you offer praise to God. You say, I know that this is going to, this too is in your hands, is going to work. He says, what you're doing in that moment is you're unlocking your very purpose for existing. Your wilderness songs delight the heart of the Father and bless everyone around you. He's going, wait on me because I'm going to transform you in that space into what you were always designed to be. It's hidden away in the, in the pain of the wilderness. Will you wait on me? Will you wait on me? And we sit with this, this vision that he's giving us, and he's going, it's worth it because I'm going to answer you, and I'm going to defend you, and I'm going to transform you into a more beautiful, holistic picture of what I've always intended for you to be, and it's going to be in the waiting. And, and sitting with this reality, we, we, as has been our rhythm throughout the Psalms, we, we bring it to the feet of Jesus, and we, we hold it open to him, and we say, tell us, how is it that you fulfill this and you empower us to live it. And listen, friends, it doesn't take a lot of imagination or creativity to see the marks of our glorious Savior in this text. Some have said that Psalm 69 is the, is the greatest messianic psalm, second only to Psalm 22, clearly articulating what Jesus came to do. Can you see it? The one who is gasping for breath who is parched and feels like he's going under, who's calling out saying, redeem me, save me, come for me, who's looking for comforters, but there are none because they've all left, who calls out and says, is someone going to support me? But all they do is mock him, who calls out, I'm parched and thirsty, and they offer him sour wine. Do you see the Savior in the marks of this psalm? But then beautifully, there's a departure in two different ways between David and the greater David. The first is this. Whereas David says, there's an answer coming. You're going to deliver me and you're going to save me. Jesus received no answer. He waited and he called out. And for the first time in the whole of his life, it was silence in response to his call. He was going, Father, have mercy. And the father didn't answer. He turned his face away. He didn't listen in that moment. The wrath of God and the destruction of God and the, the judgment of God on all folly and all wrong is poured out on the Son in that moment. And the second place that he departs from David's psalm is this. He doesn't curse his enemies, he blesses them. He doesn't say, God, look at what they've done to me. What he says is, Father, forgive them. All of the judgment that should be on them let me drink it down to the bottom. And then God forgive them. Listen. He waited 
He waited in the moment of exhaustion and exposure and excruciating pain so that he could work on your behalf to answer you and to defend you. Listen, every enemy to your soul, every sin and temptation and brokenness and ugliness in your life, you get to look at it and you go, the cross has paid for this. The cross has cleansed this. We look back and go, the Lord is defending me. He fights for me. He's going to put an end to you. The Lord defends us and in that he will transform us. The son endured and waited till the very end so that we could experience the answers of God, the defense of God, the transformation of God. We of all people, those on this side of the cross, we can wait. We can cast ourselves upon Christ and wait, knowing that our story is a good one and that he's at work even in these moments, even here. Let me pray for us. Uh, so God, we admit that we are impatient people. We are people that lack vision and faith. We're so tempted to let our current pain define our existence and our responses. And what we're asking is for the grace of Jesus to so flood and fill us that we would be the sorts of people that wait faithfully that we would know that in fact Zion is going to flourish. The city of God is going to be renewed. We will be at home there with you. All will be made right. Present sufferings are not worth comparing to future glory. Jesus, you have accomplished all. Help us to be the sorts of people that sing wilderness songs. Wilderness songs that bless the heart of the Father and restore the hearts of the saints. Help us to be those sorts of people. You're worth it. The waiting is painful, but you're worth it. We thank you, we praise you, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.